Russell has already mentioned this, but just want to go ahead and remind everyone again to mark our calendars for October 21st through the 22nd for our family retreat. Church Family Vision Group and others have already been planning and making preparations, and it's going to be a great weekend. Looking forward to our time together. And so if, you, if you're wondering about what that is, just come on and find out. You're a considered family, and as he mentioned, it's for everyone in the congregation, singles, everybody of every age, and we're looking forward to a great time together. There is no shortage of church books in the market of book writing in and out of the church on how churches grow. And what churches need to do in order to be successful in church growth. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with the words of men as they try to help us with how we should think about growing the church and how we should think about succeeding and spreading the gospel. But at the heart of it, the greatest book in the world on church growth is the book of Acts. You open up the 28 chapters that Luke gives us and chapter after chapter. Luke shows us the expansion and the explosion of the gospel as it is carried throughout the world. What began with the nucleus of men in Acts chapter 1 and verse 15 with those 120 quickly began to grow in number. As Peter preaches the first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, those that gladly received the word were baptized. And by the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, those 3,000, their number is being added to day after day. In Acts 4 and verse 4, Luke says that they're up to 5,000 men now, not counting the women and others who've obeyed the gospel. Acts 6 and verse 7, a great company of priests are obedient to the faith. And before that, in Acts 5, 14, after the death of Ananias and his wife, a great multitude become Christians. By the time you get to Paul's second missionary journey in Acts 16 and verse 5, Luke tells us that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly and the churches, the congregations were being strengthened. It was a great time to be a Christian. One thing that Luke makes apparent as he writes the book of Acts is that there was nothing that was a match for the word of God. As the gospel went forth and went out, it conquered every opposition, that from without and that from within. As the gospel message spread, people turned to Jesus and they were converted. Church growth is a great blessing. It's a great thing. And when you get to Acts chapter five, you begin to wonder a little bit because this is the first intrusion of a problem or of discord that might seem to disrupt this harmony, this unity and this success. But Luke tells us that through the discipline of God, Ananias and his wife are struck down because of what they've done and their hypocrisy and in their deceit. But then Acts chapter six is different. When you get to Acts chapter six, there's another problem that arises in the church and it's over a benevolent issue. And as you read Acts chapter six, the first seven verses of that chapter, what you find is that church growth is a great thing, but it's also a challenge. And as people are baptized and as people place membership and as people come into our number from various places, it's exciting and it's a great thing. But it's also a humbling thing. And Acts chapter six helps us to be prepared for church growth so that we don't in our haste make a mess of the kingdom of God. And so what I want us to do this morning is really to march through Acts chapter six, verses one through seven and notice seven things that we need to keep in mind as the church grows. But first, let's notice our text. If you have your New Testament, go ahead and turn it to Acts chapter six, verses one through seven. And let's just get a lay of the land of what takes place in this account. You remember earlier in Acts chapter two, verses forty three through forty five and then in Acts four, thirty two through thirty seven. There were Christians that were being baptized that had come from various places in Jerusalem. And initially, they didn't plan to stay there for as long as they did, but they obeyed the gospel and they were in financial need. And so the church did exactly what Jesus taught. That was they helped and served one another. They sold their possessions and their goods and parted them to each other as each individual had need. 
You get to Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, and Luke tells us in those days when the number of the disciples was increasing or multiplying, there was a complaint by the Hellenists or the Grecian widows against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution or the daily ministration. And so there was this benevolent effort that went out to help the widows, just like God said they should. You know, in the Old Testament, in places like Psalm 146 and verse 9. In Exodus 22 and verse 22, God commanded his people to look after the widows and the fatherless. And this carries over into the New Testament. And that's exactly what you find. But one group is being neglected and another group is being supported. They bring it to the twelve. Acts chapter six and verse says the twelve summoned the entire number of disciples together. And they said it's not necessary for us to leave the word of God and serve tables. Verse three, look out among yourselves seven men full of good repute or a good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And we'll set them over this business. The 12 were not too good to do this work. They didn't think that they were too important to serve in this capacity. But Jesus had commissioned them for a special task. Acts chapter one and verse eight, Luke 24, 46 through 48. They were to preach the gospel message. And they say we can't leave the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. But the tables do need to be served. Look out among yourselves seven men that have the right qualities and characteristics. Verse four. But we will give ourselves over to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the multitude comes together. They know their own and they look out and find seven men. They find Stephen, a man full of the faith and of the spirit of God. And then they find Philip. And we know the most about these two men, because later on in the book of Acts, they continue in their preaching and in their teaching. But there are others. There's Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these men, these seven men stand up and they serve in this regard. And the problem is solved. Verse seven says the word of God continued to increase and multiply. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. The church was growing. It was great. But there was a challenge. There was an issue. The apostle said, look out, find seven men who can help us. And they solved their problem. They met their challenge. It's great to be a part of a congregation where people are being baptized, isn't it? It's great to be a part of a congregation where week in and week out you see different faces because people that love Jesus and love their neighbors are bringing visitors to hear the gospel. And it's great to be a part of a congregation where people are moving into our area and they want to identify with the congregation here and place themselves under the oversight of the shepherds. And that's great and that's exciting. But it also can be a challenge. And so let's study together from Acts chapter six and notice the seven things to remember no matter what when the church grows. Number one, when the church grows, remember the blessings and the challenges of church growth. You know, sometimes people say when you talk about a subject like this, well, it's not really about the numbers. And I know what we mean, but the Bible does say something about numbers because numbers represent souls. And so in Luke 15 and verse seven and in Luke 15, verse 10, Jesus tells the parable of the lost coin and of the lost sheep. And he says there is rejoicing in the presence of God over one sinner that repents. Matthew 18, 12 through 14, Jesus says it would be wise to leave the ninety nine and go after that one soul because God cares about that one soul as much as he cares about all of the others. And so numbers matter to God. Luke mentions numbers continuously in the book of Acts because they matter. And God is keeping a record and we should care as well. Paul often prayed for open doors 
in places like Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3 or Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, he would pray, God, open up a door for us so that the word of God may multiply and spread. And we want the word of God to speed ahead and have free course. Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 1. And when that happens, when those doors are open and when people by faith walk through those doors and people respond to the grace that God extends, it's a blessing. To see people put their faith in Jesus for the very first time in the way the New Testament says and to rise in the waters of baptism excited, desiring the sincere milk of the word so that they may grow. First Peter two and verse two. That's exciting. It's a blessing. And we should thank God for it. We should remember in all of our endeavors to grow the kingdom of God here at Lehman. Our efforts in the end mean a lot, but not more than what God's doing. If Genesis 11 teaches us anything, it teaches us that man-made projects outside of God's assistance and help ultimately crumble and fail, just like the tower at Babylon. But if God is giving the increase, we're blessed and we should glorify him in that. They're blessings. but They're also challenges. Sometimes people read the New Testament and they assume the first century church had no problems, no challenges, but they had plenty. There was the hypocrisy with Ananias and his wife in Acts chapter 5. There was this issue of benevolence in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 11, are the Gentiles in or are they out? Acts 15, okay, they're in. Do they have to be circumcised or uncircumcised? Much of the law, if any of the law, do they have to keep? And should Paul keep the Nazarite vow in Acts 21? Yes or no? The first century church had their issues. They had their challenges. And those challenges happen as they continue to grow. It's just a fact of life. The bigger the family, the bigger the business, the bigger the corporation, the bigger the congregation. It is great, but it creates challenges. Because the more people you have, the more opinions you have. And you know what they say about opinions. Opinions are like grandkids. Everybody thinks theirs are the best. We all have opinions. And as the congregation grows, there'll be matters of judgment and ways that people think that things should be done. And we've got to do it all just like the song we sang before the lesson so that we might be unified and be the people that God would have us to be so that we might. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 10 all speak the same thing and be of the same mind and of the same judgment as the church grows. Remember the blessings and challenges of church church growth. But here's number two. As the church grows, beware of complaining. Would you look at Acts chapter six and verse one? Luke doesn't let us miss this. He says in the days when the number of the disciples were multiplying, the ESV says there was a complaint. The old King James says there was a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily ministration. As the church grows, beware of complaining. The word that Luke uses here about complaining is what's called an onomatopoeia. The word sounds like what it describes. This Greek word, gongusma, it sounds like when you read it in Greek, somebody that's complaining or that's making a rumbling sound. A.T. Robertson in his little book on the Greek word pictures in the New Testament says it is the shallow whispering that buzzes until it is finally heard. It starts out small. It starts out light and then it explodes. But there's more than that going on in Acts chapter six and verse one. Those that are familiar with scripture, their minds are immediately trans transported back to the Old Testament when they read of this complaining or this murmuring to the children of Israel in the wilderness. As Moses led those two million plus Israelites out of captivity and into Canaan, all of them got PhDs in complainology. They all complained over and over again. Moses, we're hungry. Moses gives manna. We don't like manna. Moses, we're thirsty. Moses gives water, but not enough water. Moses, we don't like your leadership, but would you not mind leading us? 
Over and over again, they complained. Psalm 78 and verse 29 says, while the food was in their mouths, they complained to God. Psalm 106, verse 25 through 27 says that over and over again, Israel complained they didn't obey God's word and he destroyed them. And we get to the New Testament and we're warned. Do not grumble like others grumble, lest you be destroyed of the great destroyer. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Philippians 2 and verse 14. They grumbled about Jesus in John and verse 12. Is he the Messiah or is he not? And as the church grows, beware of constant habitual complaining. Beware of becoming a chronic complainer yourself because it'll ruin you and it'll hurt the church. It's at this point that we could really pause the lesson and just insert Bryce's Devo from Wednesday night where he encouraged every one of us to reorient our thinking about complaining and how we see ourselves in view of all that God's done for us. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. You know, scientists have said complaining is not only annoying, but it's bad for your health. They say complaining begets more complaining. The way neuroscientists describe this, they say synapses that fire together, wire together. And what they mean is as you complain, your brain rewires itself so that you begin to complain more and more because you've conditioned your brain that that's how it's done. They say it hurts your memory. They say eventually it corrupts people. If you listen to 30 minutes of complaining uninterrupted, neuroscientists believe that what eventually happens is neurons from the brain's hippocampus are removed and your brain is disoriented. Complaining can ruin folks. But science just puts the icing on the cake of what scripture has already told us. God says complaining is not just bad for your cells, it's bad for your souls. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, because the judge is standing at the door. James five and verse nine. But as we grow, it gets easier. It gets easier to complain. We don't get our way. Things don't go the way we like. They didn't sing my song. Somebody's sitting in my seat. I don't know who gave them a seat or how they know it's their seat, but somebody's sitting in it and they don't like it. Is he doing the announcements again? He's up doing prayer. This one's going to be a long one. Buckle up. Is she raising her hand again in Bible class? We're ready to move on to the next verse. And that baby's disrupting the service. And on and on we can go with our complaining. And we can be just like the children of Israel. We can disrupt the kingdom of God because as we grow, everybody has an opinion about how they think things ought to be done. And we forget we're not in the kingdom of men. We're in the kingdom of the Messiah. It's his family. It's his church. And how we deal with her matters. And so beware of complaining as the church grows. The word Luke uses challenges us more than we think. He says there was a complaint against the Hebrew women by these Hellenists. But the word that Luke mentions here means a low grumbling and undertone. It's a whisper. It's secret talk. This word means that we might think to ourselves, well, I'm a well-behaved member of the church. I'd never say anything negative out loud. We can be pleasant and upright in person and corrupt and poisonous in private. We might say things that are right when other people are watching us, but behind closed doors, we may struggle to find anything positive or uplifting or constructive to say about the people of God and the kingdom of God. This passage tells us that God hears us no matter what, even when we whine in secret. Sometimes a mom or dad says to a kid, go to your room. And the kid says, well, what did you say? God never says that. He knows what you said. God knows what we say, even in secret, as these individuals begin to murmur and complain. God hears us. All things are naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Hebrews four and verse 13. We might think to ourselves, you know what? 
The church would be better if I was in charge, if I were king for a day, 2 Samuel 15, 4, just like Absalom thought. But we need to remember whose church and whose kingdom it is. And as the church grows, check our complaining at the door. Now, here's number three. As the church grows, look out for the neglected. There is this benevolent effort that's taking place and the Hebrew widows, they don't complain. Their needs are being met. These Grecian widows or these Hellenist widows. These individuals are those that are Jewish people, but they're from outside of Palestine. So they're probably a mixed breed. They spoke Greek and they're being neglected. And this brings about their complaint because they're being overlooked. As the church grows, it's exciting. But can you imagine being a part of the church in Jerusalem, the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus? The gospels preached and 3000 people immediately respond to the gospel and they obey it. And as we often say, the squeaky wheel gets the grease and you're a new convert. And initially you're getting all this attention. People are showing you the love and care that you need to develop and to grow. But by the time you get to Acts chapter four, there are 5000 individuals now and you could be left in the shadows. You could be overlooked. You could be forgotten. And that should never be the case. I know it's just a movie, but it's not impossible to see how Kevin McAllister was left home alone two Christmases in a row in a family full of people and full of chaos. It can happen. And in the hustle and bustle of church growth and of evangelism and of new converts and of people coming in from different places, it's possible for people to slip through the cracks. But, you know, the cracks were meant for Cheetos. And for pennies and for lint, but never for people. God never designed people to slip through the cracks. And so we need to keep our eyes open. Who might we overlook? Who might we neglect unknowingly? We might overlook or neglect older people. Paul tells Timothy in first Timothy five, one through two, you treat the older men like you would your father. You treat the older women just like you would treat your mothers. We might overlook widows. James 1:27 says it is pure and undefiled religion to look after the fatherless and the widows. Don't overlook them. Don't neglect them. We might overlook young people or view them maybe as an agitation that just sort of needs to be moved out of the way. But Paul's words to Timothy, they apply to all of us. Don't look down on anyone because they're young. First Timothy four and verse 12. We might overlook the longtime wayward. Well, they've been gone so long, we can just scratch them from the books. I mean, they're not members here. They're not interested. And we could forget about them. But Jesus says we'd be wiser to leave the ninety nine and go try to the best of our ability to rescue them. Don't overlook them. Don't let their apostasy become accepted. Do everything you can. Don't overlook them. We might overlook individuals that have been faithful for a very long time. And we might say to ourselves, well, they don't need any attention. They're getting all the attention they need. We need to focus on these new folks and that they need encouragement just as much as anybody else. Paul lifts up Epaphroditus in Philippians 2:29, and he calls him a fellow soldier, a helper, a man who almost died for the cause of Christ. But the Philippians needed to remember him, not overlook him and not neglect him. I read two articles by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin, and she wrote one article talking about why she and her husband don't sit together in the assembly. She said they started this practice. It started accidentally as visitors would come in. They never together. And then one Sunday, one of her friends said to her, Rebecca, are you and Brian doing all right? And she says, oh, yes, we're doing fine. And she gave several reasons of why they don't sit together in worship. She says the reason why we don't sit together is because outsiders shouldn't be outsiders. And when we see an outsider, we're just going to go to them. I'm going to sit with one. If there's only one, we'll sit together. But if there's two, we just divide ourselves and we go our separate ways. She says we don't sit together because in the end, family is more than family. It's more than just about the people that we live with and that we know. She says we're looking out and when we find other people, we want them to know they're part of the family, too. 
Number three, she says, me and my husband are too much alike and we need to be like other people. We need to be around other people that don't think just like we think. We need to reach out and get outside of ourselves. Number four, she says, we don't sit together because our marriage is not just for our benefit. We're married in order to serve other people. And our marriage is supposed to be a reflection of what God has done through the church and through the kingdom of God. And the last thing she says is insularity kills outreach. When we just get among ourselves and when we get in our own little cocoons and we get this tunnel vision, she says it'll kill outreach. And so she says, me and my husband, we don't sit together. The second article she wrote, she talked about how they make Sundays uncomfortable. And here are some of the things she said to make it uncomfortable person is an emergency in the assembly. If somebody broke out and this has happened, I've preached before and people have had heart attacks and seizures and various things. You know what we do? We stop the service mid sermon, whatever we have to do. And we get to that person and we say, you know what? What we're doing is important. But this person could die on our watch right here in the assembly. And we stop everything. She says, when you get together in an assembly and a lone person in the assembly is as much an emergency as any of those other physical things, a lonely person in our assembly is as much an indictment of our spirituality as prayerlessness or a lack of generosity. It means that much. When we see somebody alone, the last thing people should do is come to the people of God and be left all alone. Do you know how many people have fought with everything within them just to get up and be here today? How many people tried to talk themselves out of coming? Mad at God, estranged from him or haven't thought about Christianity in a long time. And if they come among us and they sit alone, they walk away and say it was exactly what I thought. Just as cold as the world from which I left and back to it, I go. We need to make Sundays uncomfortable and look out among us for those that are neglected, because in the end, an alone person in our assembly, it's an emergency. Number two, friends can wait. She starts the second article by saying she was talking to a friend once and saw a visitor and she said, I'm sorry to cut you off. But and then she went. Sometimes we sit by the same people. We talk to our same crowd. But when we come into the assembly, the people that we talk to Monday through Saturday, they can wait and we can get our eyes up and look around for people we haven't seen before. And reach out to other people. We can make them uncomfortable by introducing newcomers to someone else. As you meet somebody in the assembly who doesn't know anybody else, when you hear their story and you find other people in the congregation who connect with them, connect those people together. And in the end, we simply have to take the risk. I know this is too much for any one person to do, but all of us together, we must do it. This means stepping outside of our comfort zones. This means when you come into the assembly, don't just say hi to the people that were here when you came and sit down. But look up and look around for people that you can reach. Wednesday night, Neil's teaching church family. And I'm sure many of these concepts are being covered there. Attend that class. But then we've got to put it into practice. When the last amen is said today, find one person who you've never spoken to before and get to know them. Say hi to a visitor. When people come in and, and they're visiting, help them find the scripture. Show them where we are on the screen or in the songbook. Point people because they'll care about it. They'll appreciate it. We need to let our light so shine. Yes, but it can shine in the assembly. They had a problem in the church as they grew. They overlooked people right in their midst. They're handing out bread and they handed it out to these and they forgot about these and they had to address it. And we've got to look out among ourselves and say, are we overlooking anybody? The thing I love about this in Acts 6 and verse 1, this word for neglected, It appears this one time in the book of Acts and never again. And may it be said of us, if anybody is ever neglected in our midst and we hear about it, that's the last time we hear about it. Because we love one another. We love the brotherhood. We love all men. First Peter two and verse 17. Now, here's the next one. As the church grows and lean on the leadership, 
They didn't have elders in Acts chapter six. At least it didn't seem like they did yet in the church in Jerusalem. And so they call the apostles. They summon the twelve and the twelve get everybody. They get the whole church together and they say, now, this is how we've got to deal with this issue. They trusted the leadership. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 19, Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth would have already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth would have already been loosed in heaven. And so these individuals trusted the apostles to solve the problem. You know what they could have said? They could have viewed the apostles with the eye of suspicion. We don't know if we can trust these men. After all, they're Hebrews and maybe they won't care about us Grecians. Maybe they're going to look after their own kind. You know what they said? They said, God has put these men in charge. God has given these individuals the mantle of leadership and we're going to trust them. Now, Neil's already preached about our responsibility to the eldership and we're to make sure that we submit ourselves to those that are over us. First Thessalonians five and verse 12 to know those that labor among us and to esteem them highly in love, to trust the leadership as the church grows to do the best thing for us. Do you know the deacons and where they serve in the areas where they serve? Oh, as the church grows, this matters because as different things pop up. We've got to know who to turn to and who's over what position or who's in what ministry role. And what about the vision groups and what they accomplish? We need to become aware ourselves and then help other individuals become aware so that we can know where individuals should be pointed in times of need. And when we see an issue and we bring it up to the leadership, give them time. Trust them to do the best with what God's given them. Destroy the lurking suspicion that sometimes arises in the hearts of all of us that leadership's out to get us and they want to do something to harm the flock or for their own selfish interests. Love thinks no evil. First Corinthians 13, five and neither should we. But then on the other side, leadership has a responsibility to be as transparent as possible with those that they lead to be available, to be plugged in. And as it's said about the sons of Issachar in First Chronicles 12 and verse 32, to understand the times and know what they ought to do, to know the culture, to know the scriptures, to know Christ, to know the people and what they need. The apostles were wise enough to find a solution, not to coddle these individuals, to let them do what they needed to do, to trust them, to delegate and to think that the church wasn't going to crumble because they did. And wise leadership, the elders that we have and Lord willing, the elders that will be appointed need to have this same mindset that says we're going to shepherd. We're going to lead, but we won't micromanage. This is God's kingdom and not ours. We are shepherds, but there is a chief shepherd. First Peter five and verse four. And we commit all of our work to him. When those things happen as the church grows, there's an amazing harmony. This could have ruined the first century church. It could have ruined them. I'm telling you that as we grow, everybody won't always see eye to eye. But if we keep our eye on him, we can harmonize. We can work together to the good and glory of God. Now, here's the next one. As the church grows, be willing and ready to serve. They need seven men. And they have to meet qualifications. Some people think these are the first deacons. Maybe so. Maybe their work is a shadow of what would come with deacons. But here's what we know. They had to be men full of a good reputation outside, full of the spirit and full of wisdom. As the church grows, you as an individual, just make up your mind right now that you're going to be ready and willing to serve. First, be ready. If you wanted to be one of these seven men, it would have been too late at this time to develop the qualities that would be necessary to serve. You had to already have them. You had to already be devoted to doing good works. Just read the book of Titus and see how often this phrase good works comes up. Titus 2:14. be zealous for good works. Maintain good works. Titus three and verse one. Be devoted to good works. Titus three, verse eight and verse 14 of chapter three. As the church grows, be ready. 
have your mind determined that I'm going to equip myself in whatever capacity I can to do what I can for the glory of God and for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, just think about this in Acts chapter six. What are these men about to be doing? So far as I can tell, the only thing that these men were about to be doing, these seven guys, is handing out bread. How spiritual do you have to be to say white or wheat? How much Bible do they really have to know? That's not the point. Their spirituality mattered because no one can walk in the flesh and serve in the kingdom of God. If we live in the spirit, we have to walk in it. Galatians 5:25. be ready and then be willing. One of the deceptions of church growth is, well, we've got all these people now. We've got so many people. They don't need me. I'll just sort of back away into the shadows. We need you. We want you. You're valuable. You matter. Get plugged in. We can make it our personal task to make sure everybody else is doing their fair share and never do our own. Whatever your hands find to do, you do it with all of your might. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10. Don't worry about what you think everybody else is going to do. You might assume and you would be wrong. I wish it was this way, but it's just not. You might assume more people, more servants, but that's not the case. We're going to need you. I knew of a congregation one time where a man said, you know what, I'm not doing all the prayers and all the scripture reading, because if I do it all, nobody else is going to do any. I don't know who made him in charge of making sure everybody else did their fair share. But I know as he shirked his responsibility, he wasn't doing his. Are you ready and are you willing? You know, and I know this doesn't happen here. We're all great, faithful people that never make any mistakes. But there are men that will actually show up late. So nobody calls on them to pray or to read a scripture. Well, if I just show up late, then they won't tap me. They won't include me. We need you. And when we keep back our talent, we do more than cheat the worship service here. We cheat almighty God. Dorcas made coats, Acts 936 through 43. Matthias replaced Judas. And after that, we don't know anything else he did. But he was ready when his number was called, Acts 124 to 26. Marcus simply called an assistant in Acts 13 and verse five. But whatever he did prepared him to write one of the gospel accounts in our New Testament and to be a faithful servant to both Peter and Paul and later Barnabas as well. What can you do? Can you teach a class? Can you assist in a class? Can you fix a meal? Can you be a greeter? Can you join in the ministry of prayer for the local congregation like Epaphras in Colossians four and verse 12? What can you do? I know this. You can do something. And the question is, are you doing it? As the church grows, you might say, well, somebody already has that job. I'm sure they don't need me. They can get on fine without me. Hey, church seems to be rolling around fine. Don't believe that. Find a place to serve. You say, I don't know where I can serve. Get with the elders and ask them, what can I do? What what vision group can you plug me into? How can I use my talents and my gifts to the glory of God? Because I don't want to be on the sideline. Listen, it is tempting. You can be a part of a church that is growing and thriving and busting at the seams and yourself as an individual be as dead and shallow spiritually as possible. So don't fall for the facade that, well, just because I'm around all these great things that are happening, that means I'm doing what God wants me to do. Do what God would have you to do in your responsibility to him. Here's the next one. Don't neglect scripture and prayer. Acts six and verse four. As a preacher, I can just tell you, I'm glad this one's in the Bible. Because no matter what we do, no matter how busy we get, we can fill the calendar with activities, but we are not the spiritual boys and girls club. We're not. And the apostles say we're going to give ourselves over to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We will not go any further than our prayers and our dedication to the word of God. As the church grows, remember, we live and die by our relationship to God through his word and our communication to him through prayers. Whatever we accomplish to the good and glory of God comes only through those disciplines and our submission and service to him. 
We must never get too busy to do those things. We must never rush through prayer or sprint through it so that we can get on to the more practical things. Sometimes something happens and someone says, hey, let's pray. And somebody says, yeah, but we need to do something more practical. We can't do anything more practical than prayer. We can do things alongside prayer, but we've never done anything more than what prayer can accomplish because we're praying to the one who can do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Ephesians 3:20. But that power doesn't work in us. Until we reach up and tap up into the power that's above us. The apostles prayed. The book of Acts is drenched with prayer. Before they ever preach, they pray. Acts 114. Before they ever select Judas as replacement, they pray. Acts 1, 24 to 26. When people get out of the baptistry, they're not even dry. They're praying. Acts 2 and verse 42. They pray here and they pray later. On in prison, Acts 16 and verse 25, they prayed and then they devoted themselves to the word of God. You've never heard too much Bible. You haven't. We haven't preached enough of it. Neil and David and myself, we've got to commit ourselves to the ministry of the word because nothing is going to replace a healthy diet of the word of God. The most important growth in the church is spiritual growth. And it happens as we attune ourselves to what God says in his word. This is where it happens. Preachers do a lot of things, but preachers aren't errand boys or office managers. They're students of the word of God. Sometimes people say, what do you do all day? You're a preacher. Hopefully I'm giving myself over to a ministry of the word. Hopefully we're studying the Bible so that we can dig up the treasures that are already here. We don't have to create or originate anything new. But in our study of it, we can discharge it to individuals and take it in ourselves so that we can be the people God wants us to be. The apostle said these tables need to be served, but it's not more important than the ministry of the word. It's beyond preachers, though. It means our Bible classes have to be rich and in-depth. It means we can't start this crowd surfing where we just kind of get together and there's this shallow, well, what do you think about it? And what do you think about it? And hey, how do you see the passage? No, it must be, can you put your finger on the passage? What does God's word say? And how can we apply it to our lives? More than just a congregation that just swells with our own opinions and our own ideas, we continue to look for a thus says the Lord. We're not looking for anything new. We're looking for the same truths that have been recently discovered by us and putting those things into practice as the church grows. Do not forget prayer and the word. And here's the seventh and final one. Acts six and verse seven. As the church grows, remember, there's more room. As they deal with their problem, look at the text as they deal with their problem. The Bible says the word of God increased and multiplied and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. That's how it happens. God will bless us with more growth when we handle the growth he's already given. We talk about church growth, but Luke loves to talk about word growth. He uses the same phrase in Acts 12 and verse 24. Acts 13 and verse 49, Acts 19 and verse 20. Not merely the church grew, the word of God grew and multiplied because we only grow at the word. But there is more room as the church grows. Remember, there's more room as we see people baptized and place membership. May we say to ourselves, our work is only beginning. It's not ending. What Isaiah saw 700 years before Jesus, people from all nations pressing into this kingdom. We have lived to see become a reality in our own time. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4, people from all nations and kingdoms are pressing into this one kingdom. Remember, there's more room. As you and I go out and encounter friends and family and we think about inviting them to the services where they can see us worship God and be encouraged themselves, that the very same worship will enrich their souls as they commit themselves to him. May one question and only one question rise top in our minds. And that is, are they lost? And if they are, extend the invitation. Don't think to yourself, will they fit in among us? They will. We all have the same sickness and have come to be seen by the same doctor. There is more room. 
This means scoot in on the pews. Get very close because this is not the end. It's just the beginning. There is room for more people to obey the gospel. People are lost and they need to be reconciled to God. And he's going to reconcile them through us. And as the church grows, don't say to yourself, well, we've got enough. Well, we're going to cap out at about 350 or 400. There's room for more. And whatever we've got to do, whatever changes we have to make, whatever growth, whatever, wherever the growth takes us, we're going to do it by the glory and grace of almighty God. But there is more room. May the challenges of church growth not cause us to shrink back, but to swell up into more faithful and courageous servants to do more evangelism. Because one day in the great family reunion in heaven, we'll be glad for every invitation extended and everyone accepted. John saw he he said he saw a great number. Nobody could count. You say, well, I know 5000 Christians. I've been to an event where there were 10000 Christians. This reminded me of heaven. No, it didn't. I've been to a lectureship and there were 4000, 10000. That's not heaven. How high can you count? Because John says, however high you can count, when he saw that great vision, Revelation 7, 9 through 14, it was a great multitude. Nobody can number. There were people there that spoke Chinese and Russian and German and Hebrew and French all in one great assembly glorifying the same God. But it starts here. It starts with the kingdom of God on earth going out into all the world. You know, they could have said in Acts chapter six, the priests are already religious. We've got no hope with them. They're the most educated people in Judaism. They're stuck in their traditions, stuck in their beliefs. We'll never reach them. They didn't blink at it. They said they need the gospel as much as the pagans in Gentile territories. They preached it. And even priests who had formerly served in the temple, they resigned from their positions and said, we lay down our priesthood. Before his high priesthood, you know, people and you think, well, they're locked in denominationalism. Well, he's a deacon in this church. Surely he'd never leave and come into the New Testament church. You don't know that. Sow the seed and let the seed do its work. As the church grows, remember, there's more room. Church growth is a blessing from God because salvation is a blessing from God. There is no church to expand. There's no church to grow without Jesus, a savior willing to be given. We hear this terminology and we think, well, it shouldn't be about church growth. It should just be about the people. But if people and numbers represent souls, then there's no greater work that we can engage in. Day by day, the Lord was adding to their number to the church, those being saved. Acts 2 and verse 47. And that's what we want to see happen at Lehman and around the world. We need to be ready, be willing to serve. It'll be challenging. But we'll be glad we were a part of it and we'll be glad we did it. Maybe this morning you need to do what people did in the first century. Hear the gospel message. Turn from sin to the Savior that loves you and be immersed in water to have your sins forgiven. We'd be glad to assist you and love to be witnesses of you doing that for the very first time. If we can help you, if we can answer a religious question, if we can pray for you about anything, if we can study with you, we are not too busy. To the best of our ability, we will not overlook you. We will do our best to be your servants, just like Jesus taught us. If this is your invitation... If we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.